Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hey, thanks, everybody, for joining us in our percentile vice. I'm Steve, and well, we're changing things up just a little bit. And let me give you a rundown of that. So we've got a new schedule. We'll be doing our actual plays of uh, Call of Cthulhu and other games on Thursday nights at 6. And we're going to keep this. Okay. All right. Um, and then for at least this month on Mondays, we'll be trying out something different. Uh, kind of a, a talk and other stuff on Mondays. Maybe we call it percentile advice. Nobody? Nobody? Okay. Um, so we'll be doing our actual plays still on Thursdays for now. Mondays will be talk shows, and throughout the week, we'll probably find some time to do some actual plays of RPG-related video games. So, so keep an eye out for that. Um, we also have with us today a new guest. We've got Hannah with us. You can find Hannah on Twitter at at whole not all. Um, hey, Hannah, how's it going? Um, good. How are you guys? Good. Anna, Hannah, why did I just call you Anna? Like, I should know better of all the people. Uh, <laughs> Hannah is going to be our art director and our new um, guest uh, for this evening. Um, so, Hannah, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you. Hi, I'm Hannah. I am a graduate from the University of Georgia. I'm currently a visual merchandiser, and I love just doing arts and crafts and drawing and painting in my free time. And also RPGs. Like, it's my favorite game category, hands down, no matter what platform we're playing it on, whether it's in person or on a console. So, yeah, thank you guys for having me. <laughs> All right, so first thing we're going to do on this foray into the talk milieu is discuss our recent adventures into Call of Cthulhu. Now, all of us are D&D &D 5E lovers. I love that game. It's where we all did our RPG growing up. Well, we decided to branch out a little bit, and our first branch out was Call of Cthulhu. Now, John's been playing Call of Cthulhu with Percentile Vice in our live streams for several months now, as have I. Hannah, you have not yet played Call of Cthulhu, but no. you have been watching the streams, so you're getting to see what Call of Cthulhu is like without actually playing it yet. So mm -hmm. I think it gives us some diverse... Um, perspectives to come out this discussion as we talk about what what we think uh, in terms of, of Call of Cthulhu. So let's just start off with, with the setting. Call of Cthulhu has various settings that are available. We've been in the 1920s settings. Right? There are uh, previous era settings um, that you can do with Call of Cthulhu. With the basic rules, you can actually pick any setting you want, but most of the scenarios, pre-made adventures uh, are for the 1920s setting. So 
Um, Hannah, what do you think about that that setting, 1920s United States? I love it. It has like the vintage feel and it's something everyone knows about for the most part. So it's a familiar setting, but also not. So when you're playing the Call of Cthulhu game, it's like you have this familiar setting, but then creepy things are starting to happen that put you on edge. And it's like familiar, but not. John, I know a lot of times when we're, we're playing the game, you have been able to do research, do some history to find out if a particular thing you're interested in fell into that setting. Um, what do you think about the, the 1920s era Call of Cthulhu setting and, and its playability for anybody? I think it's definitely playable. Um, I'm going to just let you know personally, like I am not a big Roaring Twenties fan. I wasn't like super into The Great Gatsby back in the day. But it is cool to kind of dip in and explore a little bit, if you know what I mean. Like, I think, like horror starts with you being somewhere familiar and the 1920s is not super familiar for me because I'm not like, I don't look up those kind of movies and I don't really like read books about the twenties. I'm sort of familiar with it from a U.S. history standpoint because of like prohibition and stuff like that. I actually stayed in a former brothel that was owned by Al Capone in Chicago a while back. So, like, when we were doing the Valentine's Day one and we were, like, in apartments in Chicago, I had a really vivid imagination of what that would be like. But I think the 20s is definitely cool. I would definitely like to explore some modern stuff at some point. But I also don't want to be, like, having to decide how many points to put into hacking and stuff like that. <clears throat> so I like the the 20s era because it's it's got this noir and nostalgic feel to it. Um, I think gangsters, which is always kind of fun. Um, and then the prohibition era. And I think even if you haven't been really... Uh, in depth into you know 1920s culture or anybody that's grown up in america has this concept in their mind about what it was like in the 20s right and you know everything was black and white there was no color anywhere in the world the you know old buildings um art deco style and flappers and Right, the deco, art deco style, the the clothing, you know, all the men wore wore suits and hats, and it was just this. I have a mental concept, mental picture of what things were like back there. So when we play the games, you know, a lot of it is theater of the mind. There's some stage, there's some stage dressing to to the theater when we're playing it in in my mind. So the other thing about this setting though different from playing D&D &D 5E is it's not high fantasy, right? It's 
its normal mundane world. Um, so in one respect, I kind of missed the high fantasy aspect of D&D, but also the comfort level of playing characters in Call of Cthulhu. You know, I, not, I don't have to know a bunch of race-specific lore, like, you know, what are, what are elves like and what do dwarves do? So to me, that one was kind of a, a give and take. Um, easier as the keeper, not to have to worry about high fantasy aspects. It, it was just a world and it was older than the one we, we live in. So it was kind of kind of uh, easier for running the game in, in that regard. But I missed some of that, that high fantasy aspects of it. Hannah, what do you what did you think about that aspect of the setting that it was mundane versus say magical? Definitely changes how you play the game. That's like the biggest difference that I saw. Because it's not high fantasy, you don't just get to attack anything you want. Like a lot of five uh, E plays, it's like you could always resort to violence and like end it all if you need to fight your way out but when you're in this 1920 setting sometimes that's harder to do like you can't always fight because there is a more sturdy law there are other people this is a normal setting and you can't just go willy-nilly with whatever you want to do so having to find that creative way of problem solving that is unlike a lot of other RPGs is really interesting to me. John, what about that? You know, so we've got the 1920s era and everybody has a picture of that. But, but the other big thing about this setting is that it's not high fantasy. Um, how does, how did that ring with you? Meh. There's still magic. There's still supernatural still weird it's just the pointed ears are not as prevalent well if you go forward another 40 years and go like 1966 there are pointed ears then but spock pointed ears and not elf yeah i got where you're going with that. <laughs> so it'd be nice to do a do a scenario in the in the mid 60s and start bringing in some of the pop culture that we're more familiar with uh, you know, I don't know what pop culture was like back in the 1920s, except everybody was into mysticism and, you know, mediums and spiritualism was a, was a thing. Um, but as, if we started playing more modern scenarios, we could weave some pop culture. I'm surprised you haven't made us play something in the 70s, knowing how much of a fan of that era you are. Right, right. Um, horror at the disco. I think I'll just have to develop something up for that. So as we talk about the, the setting, especially when we started talking about how it was mundane versus, see, we really kind of started to, to bleed over into the next thing I wanted to talk about, and that was genre, right? Um, so the genre here is, as John mentioned, cosmic horror. Um how did that feel and how did that play out is uh, you either watched it, John, um, watched it, Hannah, or played it, John. Uh, I know from my aspect of, of 
being a keeper for it and then playing a couple of times. Uh, I, I really liked the cosmic horror nature of things because it meant that most what you would consider the B, the B bag, the big bads, were essentially undefeatable, right? Now, some of the lower ones, you know, like cultists or somebody who's gone crazy trying to connect with some cosmic god uh, or entity. Now, those folks were beatable, but, you know, running up against Cthulhu or Yogg-Sothoth or something like that, you were not going to beat those. So it required playing your character much differently. Uh, it kind of drives that this is a game about investigation and role-playing rather than, oh, let's just march on to the next combat and kill the next thing. So, Hanno, what what did you think about the the difference in genre, not just the setting, but going to that cosmic horror type? Um. I'm not the biggest fan of horror. My favorite is more um, psychological horror, which is where Call of Cthulhu kind of resides because you're playing this game. You're having to think about and imagine all of this happening. And to have that in this setting makes it even scarier if you were to put Call of Cthulhu in a high fantasy element, it would be like, yeah, that's a normal day. We're finding these monsters and cultists. But as soon as you put it into more of a um, universe that we know, it starts to add that level of, oh, this is something new, different, and scary. And when you start putting in that familiar and then going to the unfamiliar, it really starts to irk with you. So I really love that aspect of all of it. And just, it's a great refresher compared to all the high fantasy stuff that we normally see. Yeah, that's a good point. Because like D&D, &D, Cthulhu would just be another monster. Yeah. Go fight. Yeah. Right. Uh, whereas here, it it's a bigger, broader, scarier thing. And but I think, Hannah, to your point, if we were to list out horror genres, people would list cosmic horror and psychological horror as different genres. But yeah. from the standpoint of, of a player, right, who's getting mm -hmm. into this game, even though it's cosmic horror, there is this psychological aspect to it, not only for your character, but for you as a player, as you mm -hmm. kind of immerse in this thing. Like this is, this is a different uh, challenge than mm -hmm. just let me get my other band of uh, rogues and bards and elves and dwarves together and let's go slash something. Mm -hmm. John, I know. Go ahead, Anna, and finish up. I was just going to say, especially when you start adding the insanity element to the game, like that adds a whole nother level. But we can talk about that later and hear what John has to say. <laughs> sure. So, John, I know that uh, from much from your younger days that you were 
a fan of Craftian type horror that you probably had read more of that kind of stuff than any of us prior to playing. So I'm really interested in in your thoughts on in a role-playing game using cosmic horror as the genre. It's definitely, like, while I had the most experience with Lovecraftian-type horror, I am not a horror fan. Like, I don't go watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween and stuff like that because a lot of the time it's an excuse for excessive gore, and that's not something I'm into. I kind of agree with Hannah, the psychological horror aspects of things are, even though cosmic horror and psychological horror are sort of apart, they work on the same parts of the brain and they do the same kind of work. They thrive on weirdness. Something is not the way it seems. And I like weirdness. I'm a huge fan of weirdness. And that comes across. In almost everything you do. Do you like my string of Yoshis? I do like your string of Yoshis. I'm particularly glad they made the uh, made the shot. And the, the light-up 20-sided uh, dice is pretty cool, too. Yeah, I don't know if they can see it on yeah. the stream. Oh. There you go. And the Yoshi egg. <laughs> All right, so the other... There are more. One of the other main differences in branching out from D&D 5e into Call of Cthulhu, and as we were prepping for this, is the mechanics. The mechanics of the game are much different. Where in D&D 5e, you get a, a an ability score is basically from one to 20 and that ability score uh, affects your your success in in doing different things and then they're derived from that into skills that you can gain proficiency in so there's a proficiency modifier that goes with it um, and then a, a link back to you on your ability scores so your perception based on your wisdom plus your uh, proficiency bonus gives you a plus to a roll, and then you're rolling against some difficulty level. In Call of Cthulhu, though, everything that you want to do, your 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 basic core attributes like intelligence, dexterity, power, constitution, those kind of things, um, are based on one to a hundred. Right. If, if you had a hundred in that, then you're essentially perfection, expert. Uh, and if you had a 50 in that, well, you're probably kind of kind of average. And from that, then all your uh, so sometimes you will roll against those attributes, and then sometimes you roll against skills. And in the skills, it's the same thing, right? You have skill points to spend at character creation, and you put them into different skills, that, and those points represent the percentage chance that you would be able to successfully do a task related to those skills. So if it was spot hidden and I had 65 points in spot hidden, that means I have a 65% chance 
to successfully spot something, and then we roll percentile dice. So it's, you know, in a nutshell, it's built around a D100 or two D10s percentile dice, rather than built around a D20 system. Uh, so I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on on that, because that's the overarching mechanic of, of Call of Cthulhu. Everything you're going to do has a percentage chance of success. And then you roll against that percentage chance instead of this exterior difficulty class that then you would roll your dice and modifiers to see if you could meet that difficulty level. Um, Hannah, from watching the game and seeing that indifference between this game and Call of uh, and D and D Five E, what were your thoughts? So I won't lie, when I first started watching the stream, I had no idea what was happening, but I knew one thing. When you guys roll, it either says success or fail. And like that was very clear cut, very easy to understand when watching it. In 5E, there's always like DM discretion on whether or not you pass or failed a throw. So when you just watch Call of, Call of Cthulhu, it's very clear cut. Good to see. I could see if you succeeded, succeeded or failed. And that was very nice when I was just new to all of it, didn't know the mechanics. Um, but learning more about it, I enjoyed it. It's much more simpler than 5e. It's just different than what a lot of people are raised or brought up on. So it's more of just confusing in that sense of this is totally different. But once you start to learn more about it, I like it a lot because it's more individualized instead of just a set standard, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you. The, the ability to lay in your points, the, the the skills that you're going to have based on how you want to build the character, there seems to be a lot more freedom, right? And then it is based on how good I am at something. Not as much as how difficult a thing is, an external mm -hmm. thing. Now, there is a way that they've accounted for that a little bit, and we'll get into that yeah. here in a second. But, uh, John, what, what about you? What do you think? Think about moving to a D100 based set of skills and abilities versus a D20 base. Well, it's nice because in a D20 base, you add one, which is ratio one to 20. If you add five to your regular score, five of 100, one of 20, in the percentile game, at least. You can have like gains that are a little bit smaller, more incremental. And that goes on the difficulty side of things too. So like if you're competing with somebody who has whatever and they have a little bit more than you, you know, I don't think it's that different really. I think the percentile versus d20 wasn't near as big of a clear-cut what the f as the move from a class-based game to a skill-based game and i really enjoy that it's not based like 
you don't have to come in and immediately you have to put your character in a little basket. You're either a barbarian, which you get subclass stuff and you can look a lot less like other barbarians with it, but I kind of like that in Call of Cthulhu, you can, you have an occupation, but it doesn't really matter all that much. It doesn't limit you, that's for sure. It right? definitely doesn't um, limit you. At the beginning of character creation, your occupation is going to give you a pool of points to put in specific skills, uh, a range of them that are aligned with that occupation. So you get, here's a chunk of skills because you decided you were an antiquarian. Here's some skills that you can put in things like archaeology or uh, appraisal or, or things like that. They give you a pretty good list so that you're not tied down to how you're going to pour them in there. But then you also get a set of skill points to put anywhere you want, right? Because you know, even if you're an antiquarian, that's not the only thing you are, right? That's just what you do. And there can be a bunch of other aspects to your character. So I like the way that you could, you could build it up there. And because of that, I could be really good at spotting hidden stuff without having a high intelligence or wisdom that might be required in D&D &D to get really good at spotting stuff. So you can, you can build the character um, the way you want it um, at the beginning. And then, of course, uh, as you move along. Now, I kept talking about how when you make skill rolls, that it's really you're rolling against your own level of expertise in something, right? I've got a 65, therefore, if I roll 65% or less on the die, I succeed. There are instances where outside forces would, would affect that, and the game takes care of that. I mean, you talked about how you like seeing on the, on the screen that you know, we'd roll something, and, and roll 20 would say, you rolled a 23, and, and it would say success, right? You probably also noticed that a lot of times it would say hard success or extreme success. Right? A hard success... If you had to roll something in a hard success, then it's like at half of your skill level. So if I had 70 in a particular skill, a regular success would be anything under 70, and a hard success would be anything under 35. <clears throat> and then an extreme success is one-fifth, and I don't feel like doing the math on on the 70, but it's somewhere around 12, I guess. Um, so the dungeon master, uh, the game master, can can account for some of those outside influences by saying this particular role is going to require an extreme success or a hard success. So it's comparable to setting a higher DC level in in D&D 5e. There's also another way that, that that can be affected, and that is with bonus or penalty dice. Uh, and then the book goes into some degree of explanation about this, but the way I considered it was if situation and circumstances outside your control made it a little bit difficult or more difficult, then I would use the hard or extreme success requirement. But if 
something in the way that you are approaching or the things you are using to do this make it harder or, or easier than I would use the bonus dice or penalty dice. So in that regards, it's kind of analogous to having inspiration or advantage on a roll or disadvantage on the roll. So there's, there's some analogies there, but it is still all based around a percentage chance to do something. Um, so you've gotten to see us play some of these games where because John or, or Emily had a uh, ingenious way about going about something, I'd say, eh, it was pretty good, take a bonus dice. Or John was trying to walk down the road with his pants at his ankles. It's like, okay, well, you still have a chance to do this, but I'm going to have to give you a penalty dice for what did you think about those mechanics hard extreme uh rolls and then bonus and penalty dices hannah um i as you're explaining it and what i've seen it feels simpler i don't know i've not been in a gm position so i would not know but instead of having to decide oh this is going to be at a um you have to roll at a 10 or above. You can just set that extreme uh, hard or easy mode to where it's still relative to a person's skill. It's not like a set bar to pass and then they have to have all these additives to get there. It still feels very relative to them and their ability. And... Yes, it's still the ability is still accounted for in like D and D five E and whatnot, but this just feels more personal, and I like it because you could still have all these additives in D and D five E, but this is it feels easier when you have a chance out of one hundred compared to out of twenty. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. John, what do you, what do you think about uh, that whole discussion? It's based on your skill and your skill ability, and you're really rolling against yourself, but Call of Cthulhu does give way to to provide some, what are the exterior forces that are affecting this, making it normal, hard, or extreme, or the role play and situational aspects that might add a bonus or, or penalty dice. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I also like that you can spend luck to automatically bridge if you know you're right there under a good successful role and you're like, well, dang, like I, I need to spend that luck because if you didn't have the bonus dice to roll, it's always good to make a success. So do that luck and then you can push it too and... There's always a penalty of some sort to that, but it's nice that it lets you choose, hey, you can have a bonus dice, but you're not going to be able to check it off, and you have to have some sort of risk in there with it. So I think I... it's pretty, as far as forgiving to the players, I think it's really forgiving to the players, which is good because... 
the system is regarded as one where people die often, and it's nice that it does give the players a lot of opportunities to do something while they're there, to have some sort of meaning. Yeah, I, I like it. So that's a good segue to the other, some of the other mechanics I wanted to talk about: luck and, and insanity. Um, I love the luck rules, right? It is a difficult for characters game system, right? Uh, you're going to start off with somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 16 hit points, and you're never going to get any more. Very realism, realistic in that regard, right? Um, I'm probably not going to, as a real-life person, have substantially more or less health, no matter how good I get at a particular job. So very difficult <clears throat> and taxing on players, right? So having this pool of luck that you can draw upon to, to take a role that was close and, and get it into a success mode, I really like. And I also like that there's some, some danger to that because you can use luck to, to help change your roles, but you're also going to need luck in certain situations where if you're lucky, this is going to happen or not happen. So you may have to roll against that luck number. So you have to be careful about just willy-nilly spending all of your luck points to change a bunch of roles because then you find yourself with, oh, is it, John, you had like six luck points left at the end of one game and we're yeah, trying to... I think to it was like 12 or 16, but it was way down there way low and then finding situations where uh, i really need to hail a cab but it's late at night and well let's do a luck roll to see if there's a cab nearby and i if i know you you made that roll anyway with no with only 16. alice had to come and get one <clears throat> that's right so it's a it's a it's a give and take right it's not just all a, here's something else for you so i like that there's the luck points you can change role but i also like that spending your luck too freely could have disadvantages to you Hanny, i'm sure you got to see them use luck because they use luck all over the place what were your thoughts as a person who's played rpgs for 10 or 12 years but have never played call of cthulhu what do you think about that really liked it because it gave more choice to the players with dnd 5e the only ways you get to re-roll something is if you have advantage which is already predetermined inspiration you have to choose to spend it like before you even make the roll or by the luck feat or other feats that you have to get which can be limited by your character level and whatnot but this luck in Call of Cthulhu, it's open to everyone. And that you can always make that decision. It will have consequences, yes, but you can make that decision and you're not limited by your character, class, or feats, or whether or not you have an advantage in an area. So to have that bonus always accessible is really cool feature that I like, even if it might come with those disadvantages later on, you get to make that choice in the moment. You don't have to premeditate it or anything. 
Yeah, and sometimes it's a tough choice, isn't it, John? Yeah. Where and this is a critical role, uh, really central to the storyline, but to get it a failed role to a success is going to be really expensive in luck points. And you were faced with one of these types of situations many times, right? Should I spend 10, 12, 15 luck points for this really important thing or not? What were what were your feelings about the whole... I know you touched on them a little bit in the last answer, but uh, luck in general, the concept of it and the ways utilized in the game. I really enjoy it. It's... There are so many times when you roll something and like in D&D, it might be like you are one below the armor class and you're like, oh man, because there's nothing you can do at that point. Like you're not going to get a gimme from anybody. You can't, unless you have the uh, inspiration roll from the keeper, but that's kind of a special case and it's nice that in Call of Cthulhu, if you get really close, then you can bridge the gap, but there is a cost. It doesn't yeah. give it to you for free, so it's still meaningful. Yeah, I agree. So, hey, thanks for, for joining us, uh, C. Honato, Celia. Jove, Anamosi, and True Albert, appreciate you guys being here. We are uh, discussing Call of Cthulhu from the standpoint of E&D 5E lovers who decided to branch out and try some other things. And, and what did we see about this game? What did we like about it? Um, and uh, just how it, it struck us overall. We're joined by uh, Hannah, who has played D and D for ten or twelve years, but never played Call of Cthulhu, but has watched us play Call of Cthulhu on our live play, and John, who has now played Call of Cthulhu for about three or four months, like the rest of us, as we branched out into this game, and we're just right now talking through the the mechanics differences between the games and what we liked about them. So, John, you mentioned the other one, and this is the big one, central to Call of Cthulhu, is sanity. So, you know, in Dungeons and Dragons, really the only thing that's going to stop your character from moving forward in its life and its adventures is loss of hit points that could result in death. In Call of Cthulhu, you've got loss of hit points that could stop you, but also loss of sanity. Um, that the the mythos and the creatures and the weirdness, those cosmic horrors that you will run into are having an effect on your mental side of things. It really gets to that psychological horror thing that uh, Hannah was talking about and, and loves. Sanity from, from, a, from the keeper side of things as I was trying to learn and understand this new game um, was one of the hardest things for me to get my pardon the pun, head around, um, figuring out how it works. So you have a, a base starting point uh, of sanity, things you see or experience, and it causes you to lose some of that, usually based on a dice roll. You roll a dice, you lose some sanity. And if you lose too much at once, then you go into this 
this bout of madness where you lose control of your character for uh, you know one to ten rounds. The either the keeper can just take control of your character and make it do those things. But I find it much more fun for the keeper just to tell you this is what just happened to you. Now you role play that for the next ten rounds. Or you could lose so much sanity at one point that uh, you go into just being temporarily insane and it's going to last much longer than 10 rounds. And you may come out of that with a, a new phobia or mania that, that you have to role play for the rest of your character's existence, which I really kind of find fun and, and cool. But you have to kind of protect your sanity um, you get opportunities to regain sanity at some points, but it was a really difficult aspect to get my head around, but really fun in, in game terms um, to see it play out and watch it. So Hannah, never having played Call of Cthulhu, but having watched the stream, and I'm sure you saw them take some of these sanity um, hits. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on the sanity rules and how that added to or took away from role-playing in general or the game? I think it greatly adds to the role-playing experience. In D&D, it's very easy to disassociate from your character because you know your character needs to get something done and you want that to happen. You want to keep continuing. And so sometimes on a meta level, you just go ahead and keep doing it while your character could be could be or should be experiencing more turmoil than it you're currently portraying with this sanity aspect it forces you to think about what your character is going through not what you want to happen but what your character is experiencing and how they need to react to it especially in this horror aspect there's a lot of different responses to horror and different trauma responses so to add this sanity level really adds to the role playing and the real how someone would really react to a situation and just adds more realistic role playing to it that i really enjoy and it really just makes you put yourself in your character's shoes I agree. I, I think that uh, the role-playing aspects of it, specifically in relation to sanity, but it brings up a larger point that, that this game kind of expects and drives more role-playing R-O-L-E than role-playing R-O-L-L. It is sometimes a, a rut a D&D game will fall into. Right, um, it's easy to play and love D and D with ever without ever actually doing role playing. Right, mm -hmm. uh, I've got a character, I've got his concept in my head. Now let me go smash something. Um, and I found that it was hard sometimes to um, build up the role playing aspect in, in D and D, just from comfort level or experience, the games we've always played or whatever. But playing Call of Cthulhu. I really think playing Call of Cthulhu and the emphasis on the role-playing will make me a better role-player in D&D &D games because when I'm not so um, shy about it, maybe, is the thing. But I could see the the fun in the role-playing more. 
Don, um, what about you? What were your thoughts on the sanity system? I know when we played our very first game, and I think we streamed it, uh, you guys used pre-gen characters, and right there at the end of it, the thing in the attic um, just blew your freaking mind, and, and you went. I think it was uh, uh, temporarily insane. Since that time, your characters have been pretty fortunate in the, the sanity roles. But we've seen Emily's characters have a little bit of difficulty in some of those. So what, what were your thoughts as we played through it? One, how the mechanic worked and then how it played out. And then some to, to Hannah's points about the role-playing aspect of it. Um, hmm. So I think it's good. I think it could use a little tweaking depending on what... Like, if somebody is playing somebody and the background for their character is he, three years ago, came back from World War One and yada, yada, blah, blah. If he was, like, in the trenches, he's going to have some PTSD-type things, but he may not necessarily need to do a sanity roll after seeing a dead body. Because, I mean, yeah, I, I probably don't need to explain that, but <clears throat> I don't think there is a uh, combat package that you can take that gore and dead bodies aren't sanit sanit sanity roll things for you. Like, you can tell the Keeper... I don't have to make that because I have this package. But it is sort of divorcing from your character when, like, say you're a butcher. That's what you do for work. And you walk into a bloody room and it's like, eh, I've seen this kind of stuff before. But, you know, you have to kind of, if your keeper works with you, that's good. But. I think there are some ways that it could definitely be better accounted for in that area. But it is ultimately a pretty good role-playing tool. Like, I enjoyed watching my wife go insane and the lasting thing from it after we did the... It wasn't Crimson Letters, it was Blackwater Creek. And it had the mother in the water and afterwards after she came through her insanity she has a phobia of bathing i forget what you named it but then like i saw that on a twitter post like a few days ago like name a weird phobia this one's agonostophobia or whatever i think it did start with an a i think that part is pretty cool and like flaws in role playing are always good like, I think when you're young and in your first game, you write the character who never does anything wrong. They are a perfect specimen. They walk into every general store doing the peck bounce and all the girls flock to them. And then as you get older, you realize, yeah, it's cool to be the rock, but you can only be the rock so much before it's like, okay, I'm the rock. I'm, I'm a movie star. What the fuck do I do now? So it's kind of yeah. cool to be a regular jack-off every now and then. 
I so you know that's a good point about you know how you perceive your character as you're, you're building it and, and the you know making this just perfect specimen the rock character. One great thing I think D and D did with Five E is bring in those um, backgrounds, flaws, um, uh, bonds, and those kind of things, so that you could get a flaw. What I don't see a whole lot of is people role playing to those flaws um, that D and D Five E set up, uh, and to try and encourage it. You know, it says in the in the the five year rules that that uh, dungeon masters you know ought to you know award inspiration for people playing against their character's best interest because a flaw drove that um, so so good on on d and d five e bring it in there but it's almost central to this game when you have those phobias or manias or you're in a bout of madness or you're temporarily insane that is going going to drive the uh the role-playing aspect of it and by the way john uh jove loved your example on uh um how call it cthulhu mechanics are, are more friendly towards a role-play environment so um before we played this game i really did not enjoy role-playing in our D and D games. I was kind of a wake me up when the combat starts. And I, I think I've grown out of that a bit now because the, on top of the ability to be a flawed character and all that, you have to do the investigations. It's not like you're just slogging through until you get the next combat and you can kill something. Cause like, the next combat may very well be one you have to want to run away from because there's some sort of eldritch horror that is not killable by you. So you don't really look forward to combat in Call of Cthulhu. That's not what you're here for. You want to find out, hopefully, how to beat it without having to fight it. You're right, though. The investigation really drives and draws out the role play from... from players and the characters while the investigation phases do have like evidence you can find i found a book here or there's a muddy footprint here so much of the the clues you're going to get in the investigation come from what other people and other npcs can tell you and you have to have, engage in those conversations with them and um that's where Role playing starts to come out, right? You're playing this cowboy bootlegger who's always got kind of a, a tough stance. Uh, if you have a choice between um, persuading and intimidating, you lean towards uh, intimidation. Uh, and there's a lot of those those give and takes. Um, you could play it, I guess, uh, like here's an NPC. Well, I talk to the NPC. Well, roll a, roll a persuade or an insight or whatever, and then, okay, this is what you learn. And it's just all narrated. Or you can play it as dialogue. And well, what do you say to the NPC? And then you say it from that voice. It does drive a lot of uh, the role play, the investigative aspect of it. Do you have anything? 
Go ahead. Charles. I think there's definitely a place for both of those. Like, you don't want to role play the using the bathroom and like regular mundane stuff that happens, but it has been really fun as Jackson. Like when you tell me something that Alice doesn't know, it's fun to say, how would Jackson explain this to Alice? Because he's kind of, he's not a complete idiot, but he's definitely uneducated by standards of the time. So getting it in wording that I can tell her that isn't your wording, like turning it into Jackson's voice has definitely been pretty fun for me. Yeah, and, and Jackson is a man of few words, right? So when he has to explain something to her, it's always kind of short clip sentences, like, well, that should say it all. And uh, Emily, the person, and Alice, the character, are both more like, hey, you're going to have to give me more than that, right? So then she's in her character trying to draw more information out of you. So, so Joe says, Call of Cthulhu is certainly a hard test for a keeper of secrets. When creating or adapting an existing scenario, you got to prepare everything, historic ambiance, make the leads, NPCs, encounters, and be ready to adapt on interactions, and of course, when sanity strikes. Joe, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the amount of work and prep put into Call of Cthulhu scenarios uh, has been much more than D&D scenarios for me. And I'm, I'm going to try to keep uh, this on a level playing field. Pre-written scenarios, like doing a module in D&D and then, then a module in, in Call of Cthulhu. I think some of it is the newness of Call of Cthulhu. I would run into something in, in prep in the in the scenario, and then I have to go pull out the keeper's rule book and re-familiarize myself um, with that. The other thing about Call of Cthulhu scenarios is they are a very sandboxy in, in nature. So from the scenario, it will say, here's a list of the characters, the dramatis personae, and here's what each one knows. What I don't know is what order you're going to go see these people in. So where in a D&D &D campaign, which I could, a lot of times those modules are written in a more of a railroad fashion, or you can kind of direct them that way, I could prepare for just the next couple uh, engagements or encounters in D&D, &D, whereas in Call of Cthulhu, I had to be prepared for almost the whole scenario because you could go in an unintuitive path through those things that I wouldn't have thought about. Learned that the hard way, so absolutely spot on, Jove, on, on the uh, level of detail and, and prep that uh, the the keeper of arcane lawyers got to do. Uh, Hannah, did you have a follow-up point on, on stuff that uh, John was saying? I thought I saw a peak of interest in your eyes at one point. Yeah, when he was talking about how Jackson and Alice have to interact, it reminded me of one or two episodes ago when Jackson saw the three-legged abomination, like two arms and a leg, and he goes, um... I saw this thing and she's like, no, you did it. Like 
it's just the whole setting and like how they interact of how he's like, no, I did. She was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> and just how she's like, okay, then tell me more. And he's like, well, it was three legged and it ran off. I don't know what more you want from me. <laughs> so it was just, he's definitely right. There are places for the quick back and forth and then to have that role playing really adds to the experience and getting to watch it as well. So before we leave off on, on the luck and the Sandy Rose, particularly since you brought up the skittering little three-legged creature from, uh, from our last couple of streams, um, danger with luck rolls, right? We now have a running joke slash thing called bush stakes because well, John's character, Jackson, tried to bluff his way through something by explaining that a cat had run through his dining room and grabbed his steak off his plate and absolutely failed his persuasion role. Um, but he wouldn't let it go, so he like, reaches into the bushes of this guy's house and says, well, let's just see if it's in here. And he opens it up and he looks at me and says, what are the chances that there's a stake down there? And I'm like, well, make an extreme luck roll. And he made it, like rolled a two when he needed like a seven or less. I don't remember what it was. But boom, there was a, a stake there. Two things come out of that. One, from now on, a, a bush stake refers to something that was just highly unlikely, shouldn't have happened, way too lucky. So if you ever hear us saying, well, that's a bush stake, that's what that refers to. And the other thing is, as a keeper, be careful what you'll allow a luck roll for because they might make it, and now it is canon that there was a steak, fresh cooked steak in a bush where it absolutely should not have been. Uh, that was a, that was a, a, a fun moment. John, you got anything you want to say about it? Because that was your glory. I'll let Hannah go first. She had something. For your next special, you should totally do the backstory of how the steak actually got there. That's not a terrible idea at all. <laughs> Why was there a steak in that bush? It wasn't because a cat put it there. But there was a steak in the bushes outside of uh, Mr. Corbett's home. And then Learned he was the like, that's weird. And I was like, not really. Cats love steak. <laughs> in D&D, &D, you go up in levels. And every time you go up in levels, you gain new and greater abilities. And you get more hit points. And more and more hit points, you become harder and harder to kill. We talked about it a little bit before. Uh, whatever hit points you got starting out in Call of Cthulhu, that's what you're going to get. Uh, so you're never more healthy than you are at your healthiest and you don't become bigger and better because you get more experience what you do get and it's a little more realistic I guess you say is you get better at the things that you are doing well at um, so in a nutshell it goes like this you have certain skills and abilities as you play through the game you use those skills and abilities 
when you successfully use one, you put a little mark by, a little tick mark. And then at the uh, player investigator development phase, any skill you've used that you successfully used, you get an opportunity to increase. So let's take my example of having a 65 at spot hidden. While I'm playing the game, anytime I roll under a 65 on a spot hidden, I successfully spotted whatever could be spotted. And I'd put a little tick mark by it. In the player development phase, then I would see if I could got better at spotting hidden because I was successful in using that skill. Then I'd roll against it, and this time I want to roll over 65. And if I do that, then I'm going to get to increase it. Now, that sounds a little weird, right? But if you think about it in terms of percentages, I have a 65% chance of doing something correctly. And if I roll, anything under represents those 65. From 1 to 65 represents 65% of the overall to do the thing. When I try to increase it, I want to be better than that 65. So I have a 35% chance of getting better. So you roll over it in, in that instance. And if you successfully roll over it, then you get to add one D10 to it. You roll, you could go from 65 to 75. Or if you're John, you go from 65 to 66 because you rolled a lot of ones on, on player development. Or maybe it was Emily. I don't know. But so you don't increase in levels and hit points and astounding new abilities what you do is you get better at those skills that you have so it drives a couple of things one use your skills find crazy ways and intuitive i'm sorry ingenuitive ways of using your skills and john is really good at this taking skills that he has very low probability in, like he's got a 5% in appraise. But he'll take a shot at appraising something because if he makes it, he gets to put a tick mark by it, and then he gets to increase it. So no levels, use a skill successfully, you get a chance to get better at the skills. So the prowess of your character comes from the skills going up not your level or hit points going up. Um, Hannah, what do you think about that that system? It adds a more realistic way to approaching skills because real life, if you want to improve, you have to do the thing. In D&D 5E, you can go about a way of never doing a skill and then still increasing its stat and its bonuses to it. Um, I'm going to interrupt this... you for just a second. Hey, Gamer Sledge, thanks for uh, thanks for the lurk. We appreciate you. Love all the stuff that you do, and uh, thanks for the support. Back to you, Hannah. Sorry. Yeah. Um. Thank you. Um. But yes, it Call of Cthulhu has very realistic game mechanics, as if it's an actual person and how to go about building an actual person. Um, in D&D 5e, it's more high fantasy and it's just leveling up, which we all know about, and we get to choose how to level up. With this, you're making a more active, proactive choice of how you want to develop as a character and having to actually put effort into building those skills, which I think is a very interesting way of going about character development. 
development because it also adds to the role playing aspect of it all. John, you are a master at getting your skills into play. Um, sometimes with big stretches of the imagination of how you'd get them into play, but I appreciate the tempt always. So what do you think about the investigator development phase and, and how that differs from what we're used to in a 5e environment? Well, let me start off by saying you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Rip Kobe. Um, it's really cool that you are basically actively building your character. I also like that you don't have to wait to level up. It's like every day, bro. Every time you go to sleep in game, you're rolling that character development. It's not based on how many things you kill or what your DM thinks is a good spot to level up. You pretty much every day see the opportunity for improvement, which as people, we should also be striving for a little bit better every day in what we do, whether it's cooking hot dogs on the grill or uh, I don't know. Wiping your butt, which hopefully you're already at a good point with that. But in any case, um, give me a swipe hidden roll. <laughs> <laughs> you can use advantage because you got the wet wipes. That's right. I'm going to give you a bonus dice for using the wet wipes. It's really cool that. Again, like D&D, &D, you kind of are in a bubble by how you pick your class, you pick your background, you pick this, you pick that. And it's not very common for people to all, like every druid is not going to be moon druid, every moon druid's not going to be hermit, but you still end up looking a lot like other moon druids or other druids with the hermit background and in call of cthulhu somebody else could have a bootlegger that looks entirely different from jackson morris and i'm pretty sure like alice is not a stereotypical antiquities person antiquarian i believe is the word antiquarian um and that's really cool because it's another aspect that Call of Cthulhu sort of rings truer in a role-playing sense than D&D for me. So along those lines, you know, for the skills that you are not good in, like you didn't put any points in those skills during your investigator creation, and so you just get the base level, right? Some of them have reasonable base levels. Like I think base level for first aid is 30%. Like everybody kind of knows how to put pressure on a wound or, or wrap up a cut. Uh, and then some of them have very, very low base levels. Like I think the base level for um, appraise is like 1% or 5%. Very, very low. Um, so you can try those, but it's going to be very difficult to succeed. However, it's going to be very easy to get better at them 
if you succeed it, because rolling over five on a D100 gives you a 95% chance of boosting it up. I think if there's one thing about it that I, I wish, and D&D &D 5e kind of has the same problem, is how you, you round out your character with other and more skills, right? And ones that you're very bad at, you, it, your chances of ever successfully doing them are so low that you may never, ever gain in those. So I don't know if I wish there was a way or if I'm thinking about, you know, a, a, a house rule that says, you know, during investigator phase, I'm going to give you a percentage chance to to increase one other skill that you aren't good at, that you didn't successfully do. But it would be nice if you, you know, you could just say, I, I'm going to try to get better at this thing that I'm not very good in that didn't require you to roll better than 5% on an appraise roll because you've never done it. I think D&D kind of accounts for it, like in their downtime rules, that you can find somebody who will teach you and you spend a lot of gold and you spend a lot of game time to, to get taught those things. So it rarely ever gets used because it is so difficult to do. I think I we know, used John. it in the Salt Marsh campaign with the Nico learning to cook, if right. I recall correctly. We did. Um, and I think there was something that uh, your daughter was, was trying to learn, too. I forget what it was. But, um, but yeah, we did that a couple times in the Salt Marsh campaign. But in proof, in, in fact, right, we never really got to the point where they had completed all of the length of time training they would need to actually get better at, at something. So really in Call of Cthulhu, the only way to do it is to just keep trying something you're really bad at until you get successful and then hopefully get to, to get a 1d10 increase to that uh, and go forward. Any, is, any, in the investigator handbook, there is a school mechanic you can use in downtime. I forget what the components of it were, but. Uh, I have to, to look into that. Um, well, my head has been mostly buried in the keeper's rule book, which yep. car carries all the core rules. And then in the investigator handbook, the bulk of it is more backgrounds and occupations that you could be used, but they do slide in some optional rules in there uh, in some places that I'm not as familiar with as as I ought to be. Yeah, Joe, you're right. Hard task accomplished can be very well uh, rewarded because it's just so so easily easy to make the the success roll um, on a to improve those hard tasks that you finally got uh, success on. Hannah, any uh, any final thoughts on the investigator development phase? One thing I can add is usually during that time, they get an opportunity to see if they can increase, improve or increase their, their luck pool. Um, and sometimes, mostly at the end of scenarios, there's usually a, a reward or award of, of sanity points. 
And based on what you accomplish, you get to roll some dice to get some of your sanity back. And that kind of rounds out the investigator development phase. Any final thoughts on that, Hannah? Overall, I think it's a very good system and that it works very well for Call of Cthulhu. I could not imagine it in a D&D setting, but it's a very cool, I hope to experience it one day because to be able to improve at any time sounds amazing because we are constantly improving in real life. We aren't waiting to level up like we are on D&D, but that D&D leveling up does also come with a sense of accomplishment like, oh, now I get to add this, this, and this. So while D&D gives that delayed gratification, Call of Cthulhu has that instant gratification of, yes, I am getting better at this, which is really cool to see. Yep. And you know, to the point about uh, learning new skills um, that we were talking about, uh, C. Celia says, you know, in D&D games, you take many sessions to go relatively few hours, right? The, the amount of time that passes in game is not very much after mm -hmm. you spend many, many sessions. So it's like, I got to spend eight weeks learning this thing. Well, eight weeks could take a year in real life <laughs> to yeah. get through in a game. So great point, Celia. Um, John, any final thoughts on investigator development? No, I think we've pretty much got it all so far. I like it a lot better than... I think it's my favorite system so far because of the instant gratification stuff and the the way you play has concrete meaning. You're not going to, oh, well, I've leveled up. I think I should be better in this skill that I've never even used before or done anything with ever. So I'm going to put some points into that. Yeah, um, great point. Um, the other thing that comes to mind for me, because investigators in Call of Cthulhu always have the same amount of hit points. They just get better at certain skills. From a game master standpoint, the concern about um, properly balanced encounters is kind of gone. Right? In D and D, you know, I've got this encounter, but now you guys are all six level, and you have all these hit points and all these extra powers. How do I make this encounter challenging enough for you? Well, in Call of Cthulhu, you you still only got thirteen hit points, even though now you went from sixty-five to seventy-two on spot hidden. You still only got thirteen hit points. This is still the encounter, and since most of the the really big stuff that you'd be going after, it's not about killing it, it's about thwarting something, sending it back where it came from. The you know, amount of time spent worrying, have I balanced these encounters so that it's challenging but not too difficult for the players that you have to do in D&D? &D? You really don't have to spend a lot of time on in, in Call of Cthulhu.
So uh, here's here's the last thing I want to talk about in terms of Call of Cthulhu. Um, but first, I'm going to uh, let's throw it over to Jove here. He says, just one critique about Call of Cthulhu, and this is going to be a great segue to the next thing I want to talk about. One critique about Call of Cthulhu rewarding system is how this is treated if not adapted by the keeper. The way money works could be a more direct, less vague, even though it's not the point of the game to have a certain financial control among characters. The keeper rulebook still points at a certain circumstances to still matters, so it is made on a certain controversial aesthetic. So there's a couple couple different things going on there, but you know, one thing we didn't hit on is money, loot. Whatever. It's really not the point of this game. <coughs> Um, where you can find money and you can go buy things. They really streamlined a lot of that. And they say, hey, based on your credit rating, which is basically your financial standing, uh, here's an amount of money you could spend every day and never go broke, right? Because you've got some income coming in from your occupation or whatever. And here's a pool of money that you have just because of your financial status that you could use to buy big things. But... You don't have to spend a lot of time going, uh, I got to make sure, you know, we get enough loot out of this thing so that I can buy that big weapon I want or purchase more healing potions or pay for the car that I need or or any of those things. So um, that uh, a reward system in, in Call of Cthulhu is really uh, one survival <laughs> You get to keep going and get to keep playing. But then the the growth and understanding in the Cthulhu mythos is kind of rewardish. Um and then, you know, if it is something your character is going after, then then the books and artifacts that have might have magical priest to them or learning spells that you could use when fighting the mythos. Um, those are the more intangible things that become that loot, the reward system um, that you get. But it's not, let's go find a dragon horde um, and become ultra wealthy and build our own keep. Um, so they, I think, intentionally just, just push the game away from that. There's not this big accounting system and mechanics you got to learn or anything like that. And any thoughts on that? In D&D, I tend to hoard my gold like... I never spend it. We'll go shopping, and I'm like, no, I think I'm going to keep it. So to have a game where it's not a driving force, I think I would really like because I never really did much with the gold anyways. It would always be like we conveniently get uh, a staff that my character could use from a different thing, and I just use that instead of, going out and buying one so for me it was always more about the experience instead of the loot but i know for some people they thrive on getting that loot and like going for the next big item on their wish list when playing these games yeah and 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 the rules let me just preface what you're about to say john because i got a specific question i want to ask you about it and then you can add your your own thoughts i was going to say one thing about hannah's yeah sure go ahead I think the hoarding thing comes from growing up playing Skyrim. You're right. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Back to you. That's okay. I just smile and nod when you guys talk about things I don't know about. The book, the the rules do 
address the situation where you know that that ten dollars or whatever it is you can spend uh, during a day without any consequences is based on the fact that you have some occupation what happens in a situation where you no longer have that occupation you know uh emily's character alice is an antiquarian works at a museum but if the trip to Blackwater Creek had taken more than a couple of days, it might have jeopardized her employment. Like, why aren't you at work, kind of thing. But we've got a very specific instance, right? John, you were a bootlegger working in, I think it was Chicago, but it could have been Boston. I think it's Chicago. Boston. Yeah, it was Boston. Uh, the results of the Blackwater Creek uh, scenario had you in a situation where you couldn't really go back to Boston, and um, you came to uh, Arkham and have been kind of living out there. So in a sense, for a while there, you were completely obelisk. Now, it didn't really play into facts because one of the reasons you couldn't go back to Chicago is you pocketed $10,000 that belonged to a gangster, right? So we didn't really have to deal with a, do you have the $10 a day to spend? But uh, I think we did eventually uh, deal with it in the fact that uh, you were you were getting some side work uh, investigation stuff from uh, Rick Stevens' PI. Um, so the situation could arise where that very simplified monetary system, so you didn't have to deal with a bunch of mechanics, um, it gets gets corrupted or, or, or messed up because you've lost your job. Then what's going to happen? We're going to have to rework your credit rating because you don't have a job, and therefore your credit rating dropped to from 30 to 15, and therefore your daily expenses dropped considerably. It could come into play. Um, how did that work out for you, John? Well, it really hasn't played a part at all because Alice usually pays for everything before... I get a chance to do anything, so... You got a sugar mama in the game. Yeah. I do think... Uh, the way credit rating is, like, immediately... It's tied to your occupation. And immediately, like, first thing in the game, you really need to put your skill points in credit rating because you've got to have it in between a certain place for whatever occupation you're in. And it has to come out of your skill points. So you don't want to go through and like make your perfect character and be like, oh man, I got to have at least a 30 credit rating. What am I taking 30 points out of? Right. But it does come with that advantage of you have whatever per day you can spend without worrying about it. And if you wanted to be like, okay, we need to up and go to Egypt. I'm going to sell my house here. And we'll get that as petty cash and then you can have enough money to travel the world in the 1920s and not have to worry about things and not have to worry about hiring somebody to take care of your house or getting a job while you're like getting part-time jobs throughout your trip or whatever. I think there's definitely a little like what he said about it being vague, it is kind of vague because it's like 
I could take that 10 grand and start a business. Like, are the mechanics there for that? I don't know. But, you know, it could be fleshed out a little better since it's immediately the first thing really I felt like I had to do so that I wouldn't make a character I loved and then have to gut him to put whatever into credit score. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. I, I, and it doesn't come right out um, intuitively from the from the books when you're going through character creation. But uh, you do have a minimum credit rating you must have for whatever occupation you chose. So, you know, um, experience here is, hey, first thing you do is buy your credit rating up to the minimum number that you need. Then go spend your points in the other skills you want. And then if you've got a few left over and you want to bump up the credit rating, do it. But also, with that credit rating being done in, in bands, right, like from 30 to 50 is this and from 50 to 70 is that, really there's not much benefit in 35 over 30 or 38 over 30, right? You just buy up to the minimum level you have. Where it could come in and it hasn't much in in our games is sometimes an NPC may react to you based on their first impressions of you. And that can be based off of either your appearance um, score or your credit rating. So in those instances, a 38 would be more valuable to you than a 30, even though it didn't give you any more money or any more daily spend rate or whatever, but it, it has rarely come up. So I think, if I was building a new character, I would just buy up the, to the minimum level I needed, then build out my other stuff. And I've had more or a reason why I wanted to be wealthier for purposes of the character, then I'd buy more. Yeah, so Sister in Darkness, who, by the way, is Emily, our intrepid investigator, Alice, um... So that's right, uh, Mr. Wick and Alice did have a credit rating interaction, and because of how obvious it was that Alice was of the wealthier set, she was more um, engaged in a more friendly manner from, from Abner Wick in that game. Thanks for uh, remembering that, Em. So, general impressions. We were big 5e players, and now we branched out a little into Call of Cthulhu. John and you and I have played it. Hannah, you have watched our, our streams and have seen it going. So when it gets to you, I'd really like to know um, in the in the overall impressions part of your discussion um, if you see yourself playing this. But So pros and cons, overall impressions. I love Call of Cthulhu. I will always love D&D &D 5e. And I could not tell you this one's better than that one. I think they're substantially different that I just enjoy both. Um, and I wouldn't say that because I like Call of Cthulhu, I like D&D &D 5e less. Or because I love 5e so much, I can only like Call of Cthulhu so much. Uh, I enjoy them both. They are substantially different. 
for all the reasons um, that we talked about. I think <clears throat> the pros, the big pros for me on Call of Cthulhu is one, it's different. Two, I like the horror aspect of it. I really like the, the realism slash frailty of the, the players, which causes you to play the game differently. Um, there is a real chance of death, and so you got to act like it. Uh, you don't just take your little goblin and run up to the dragon and start swinging away at him. Um, and then the, uh, the role play uh, avenues, it, it just opened up role playing for me a lot, both as a keeper in doing the NPCs. I feel like I role played much more with those NPCs than I've role-played NPCs in D&D. And then for the couple of times I got to be a player, thank you, John and Emily, for, for being keeper and letting me experience it from that side of the table. Um, but just the role-play was so much more of it. You know, when we talk about the three pillars of of RPG in the in the D&D book, and it's like, uh, you know, combat, and, uh, adventuring, exploration, and role-playing, I think... Um, the role-playing pillar in this one is just much bigger, much more noticeable, and I really enjoy that. Having said that, I really enjoy combat in D&D. would never love another game so much that I never went back to D&D because taking my goblin barbarian and smacking a big bat over the head and using all the little features and special abilities I got it just really tickles my dice, so... Anna, what were your overall thoughts of uh, Call of Cthulhu having watched us play through it and talked through it tonight? Um, some of my pros are very similar to yours. The realism aspect of all of it, of how you have to play your character, and that it is a human character. They're fragile. Like, they can die very easily. They haven't leveled up and got all these health points that they can just bend and be a tank. They have to be thoughtful and think this through and find creative solutions. I also like how time is spent in Call of Cthulhu. Like you could actually do a day in one session or even multiple days in a session. In D&D, one session can be a minute and a half fight. Like with each round only being six seconds, the combat is glorious in D and D. Would not trade it for the world. Like you could do so much with all the different classes and subclasses and spellcasting abilities, but it's so quick, and you don't realize just how quick when it's spread out like that. Uh, Call of Cthulhu really has that good. You're actually role-playing and time is progressing. Um, but as you said, D&D &D will always hold a special place in my heart that nothing can change. Like, I will always experience new things. Like, I want to play Call of Cthulhu as a player and not just a watcher. Like, immerse myself into it. But... My default, in a way, is always D&D &D 5e. 
Like a part of me is always going to compare whatever RPG I play to D&D and how it correlates like we've done here today. All right. So you said, you know, you would love to, to try out Call of Cthulhu. So let's imagine a world where you did, because we have a question in chat from uh, Sister in Darkness, who is, by the way, your sister in yeah. darkness. Um, <laughs> she asked, you know, if you played, what kind of character would you make? Well, you know, what type of occupation? And, and you don't have to worry that you haven't seen the book because any occupation can be made in, in Call of Cthulhu. So what would your background be? What would your occupation be? And, and where would you like to kind of build your skill sets to be an effective mythos investigator? So some of my personal favorite hobbies and interests are true crime and then also ancient civilization. So I could see playing either a investigator like an actual cop detective that's being pulled into all of this craziness and doesn't know how to grasp with it she's always trying to find some uh scientific explanation for all of this and sometimes can't and having to grasp that with their sanity levels and whatnot that or an archaeologist who is just like gone down the wrong path like i imagine the mummy the original mummy movies of just i'm just an archaeologist i didn't mean for any of this to happen like either or i think i would really enjoy doing either of those that's probably what i would do well i think now that you are officially a part of percentile biases our art director and are now bringing your beautiful face to our stream that we can find a way to get you into some of our call of cthulhu games and other games and you can uh, you can explore those things personally yeah. i think i think you got to go with the the mummy archaeologist <laughs> uh, i didn't mean for any of this to happen thing but that's on that's that's your call john overall thoughts on call of cthulhu coming at it from a from a D&D 5e player who's branching out kind of concept, uh, pros, cons, likes, dislikes, what's your overall impression? Um, I don't hate D&D. I enjoy the high fantasy aspect of it. Um, it is kind of limiting the class system. I Now that we've played a skill-based RPG, I feel like that is much more my speed. But, like, I agree with y'all. D&D is really cool. This is really cool. Comparing them is kind of like if you compare a Honda CRV to a Toyota Tacoma, like, they will both drive on roads. They're both RPGs, you know, but one of them is a truck. One of them is a people hauler. And if you expect to get a tree in the back of your CRV, you're going to be disappointed in it. So, like, D&D does have pretty decent combat for what it is, but I feel like the skills in it are somewhat lacking and part of that was the streamlining of it because 3.5 
had plenty you of could skills. Go crazy on skills, and you every time you leveled up, you earned more skill points that you could kind of just start off assigning anywhere, uh, and you weren't limited to where you assigned them, and you know you would be better or, or worse at them based on what attribute they were. Uh, you know, ability score they were tied to, but still, if you wanted to go after a skill that was based on charisma and charisma is your dump stat, you could still do it. Yeah. Um, and, and build them up. Uh, I, I liked that part of 3.5 too, but what I didn't like was just how much stuff there was. Math. So the, and, and the math, the, the streamlining it in 5e, I liked, but I agree with you that kind of lost that aspect of it. I remember many a times where we're playing 5e, he'll be like, we'll make a, this role. And like we look at our character sheet and we, we realize the skill no longer exists. And they're like, oh, make it an intelligence role or something like that. So there has been a very simplification of the skills. And I kind of miss having that diversification because it adds more to your character in a way of oh he would know lock picking but he wouldn't know how to um pickpocket someone like there are people who can do that but sometimes in 5e they're kind of dumped into the same stat yeah right sleight of hand now uh goes for pickpocketing or doing a card trick, right? So that was their concept, right? That they could roll them into fewer numbers of skills that would still cover all the same areas. But the transition, you're absolutely right. You know, the transition from when we finally went from 3.5 to 5e of trying to figure out, well, where would this one have been nested up underneath and, and trying to find them that and and the, what happened to the five foot step? Makes it a lot easier from the player's perspective, but from a DM perspective, it can be kind of touch and go. And I think that's why 5e is sometimes regarded as a system that's really great with combat, but the exploration pillar and the role play pillar are kind of left out going the way of the Greek Parthenon and whatnot, needing a refurbishment, a new coat of paint, you know. I think Call of Cthulhu definitely is better for the role-playing and stuff. And part of it is the goals are different. Like D&D is a hero charging in the battle kind of game. And, Call of Cthulhu is more of a thoughtful and measured type thing, like we've been saying. But it's definitely I'm not going to say better overall, but it's definitely you get good things out of both experiences and depending on what you value more, and your role-playing experience. Like, if you like combat, D&D is a little better, I think. If you like role-playing, puzzling, I'm really liking what Call of Cthulhu is doing in that realm. Right, so that was one area where I was uh, a little concerned about your potential enjoyment level, right? Because I know you were 
combat. Yeah, give me something to kill. And I knew from reading up and trying to get prepared to do our first session that, that combat really is backseat uh, in, in Call of Cthulhu. Um, they, they find, I feel that they, they typically, they find a way to, to throw some combat in there. It typically tends to be at the the uh, the the um, pinnacle climax climax of the scenario, right? You're, it's investigate, find things out, move around, role play. Okay, now we know what's going on. We know we know what we think is going on, and and we're ready to try and tackle it. And then boom, there's probably some some combat there. So you get some of it, not nearly as much as D and D. I like the way it kind of builds up to the combat instead of just there's this uh, evil lich over in this castle and he's got my daughter, go kill him. Um, you know, you kind of have to build up to the why and then probably figure out some things about how to, to go about it. But uh, yeah, I was concerned that the, the, the extent to which combat took a backseat in, in Call of Cthulhu would make it less enjoyable for you. Well, there are two things in that realm that were helpful. Like, number one, Tim is not in the Call of Cthulhu games. And Tim being, like, my bro in combat is a big part of the reason why I love combat in D&D so much. Because me and him would tear stuff up and then he would go make out with the shopkeeper's daughter in the basement. And I'd try to distract the shopkeeper while he was doing his thing and aside from that like when i went into D, there was the perception that D is really good at combat and i kind of may have done a disservice to myself but i was looking forward to the combat and it was what it was and with call of cthulhu you made it pretty clear that the investigation and the role playing was a much bigger thing, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, I if I want wargaming and tactical stuff, I can go home and play XCOM after the session or uh, Fire Emblem or something that will fill that tactical combat niche. And we still have our D and D game that we sometimes get to do every now and then, so it hasn't been like terrible. All right, so several of the points that were made through all that kind of really lead to a good lead-in to the the final question here. Right? If if as we call this talk show, it's about D&D five E players branching out and trying other TTRPGs, and we, we started with Call of Cthulhu. What other games might we like to check out and, and do a little bit? And of course, if anybody in chat wants to, uh, um, you know, get involved with uh, suggesting things, we'd love to. Hey, Ken, great to see you here. Thanks for for dropping by. Bakery Crew Ken is is joined us. Great guy. Follow him on uh, Twitter, and he's got a. Uh, a stream that's uh, happening now where uh, him and the bakery crew um, discuss TTRPGs. Feel free to give us a, a quick uh, rundown elevator speech in chat there. Um, 
weekend and, and tell us about the stream that you got coming up. Um, so other games, right? We talked about things like, you know, was it class-based or, or skill-based? Was it heavy in role play or, or lighter in role play? What kind of uh, mechanics there were? So there's a lot of games that are out there. Um, and the more I look at it, the more I become uh, enchanted with a bunch of them that I, I want to try out. I can tell you there's a couple that, that I have... Um, and I've been looking at, um, I think one of the biggest ones that I'm looking at right now is a game system called Savage Worlds. And it is basically a core system that then you could build any type of environment around. So it is the basic core mechanics. And with that, you could have a science fiction setting or an Old West setting or whatnot. Now, I'm not really good at... at world building so there are some pre-made um settings that you can get along with that and one i've recently watched was um called deadlands uh, the weird west so think 1800s western but there are these uh horror elements to it like vampires werewolves schools, uh, whatnot. And I, I was able to find on the Savage Worlds uh, the uh, test drive for the Deadlands, right? And so it is a very simplified set of rules, like seven pages, um, and then and then a real quick scenario so you could test it out. So, you know, that game is a little bit, it's kind of like a mix of is it class-based or is it skill-based? Because there's some overarching classes that you can use. And then you can build out your character by aligning skill points that you get in different areas so that you can kind of build the character you want. And you're not confined to the starting class attributes that you got. You can go off in, in any kind of directions. That one seems real fun. Another one that I'm going to look at is Blades in the Dark. I watched a, a recent uh, group play this on, online, uh, Double DMs, if you guys want to check them out uh, on, on, on Twitch. They got some great live plays of that. So Blades in the Dark, think, Hannah, you remember that game we used to love to play on Xbox, uh, Thief? I knew you were going to say that. Like, the it's, cover itself looks like the Thief cover. <laughs> That's, it, it is basically role-playing the thief game, right? And so there are different types of thieves that you could play. You know, are you more of a spy guy or more of an assassin guy or a big schemer, planner kind of guy? And the whole concept of that game is you put a crew together of thieves. So the players are this crew of thieves working in the city and there's political intrigue, uh, rival thieves uh, groups, intrigue, territorialism that could, could all come into play. Kind of interested in that one, too. Get back to that 3.5 stuff that we loved you so much. You guys have heard of Pathfinder, which kind of, uh, I may be oversimplifying this, but um, the, uh, 
3.5 rules when they split off and said we're going towards uh, 4th edition and 5th edition and the Pathfinder folks was like, no, we like all these skills and we like the crunchiness and we like the math and that's what we're going to do. So that was Pathfinder. Um, but, but then based on that core set of rules, they have Starfinder, which is sci-fi related. I know Emily would really love this. Um, uh, you know, Deep space, spaceships, laser guns, all of those kinds of things. Um, we have, I think Emily has the the starter set for that. So an easy introduction into the rules and a, and a scenario to start off with. So, you know, we could, could branch into that. And of course, from Chaosium as well as Call of Cthulhu is RuneQuest. So think the, the Call of Cthulhu mechanics in a more of a high fantasy type setting um so based on skills d100s instead of d20s those kind of things so so those are the some of the things that i'm looking at and um i would love to uh to hear your thoughts on what other games we could we could try out we're in the middle of a call of cthulhu scenario but after we finish that one up it might be a good time to stretch out into the next one uh hannah what do you think so um, I am really, I really like that Thief one. I know it wasn't called Thief, but now I'm just going to forever associate it with Thief. But um, my friends and I are actually preparing for the Alien RPG from the Alien franchise. And um, I am rolling up characters and I'm really excited for it. Uh, it's much more role-based from what I can tell. We haven't played a game yet, but uh, my character is the captain of the ship, and our main goal is to be going to other planets to uh, survey them and find which ones would be good to um, inhabit or use as resources and whatnot. And then all the alien stuff happens. So... From what I know about it, not that much. I'm not uh, the GM, my friend is. But it reminds me a lot of our Salt Marsh game when we had the ship and we all had our select roles on the ship. And to I like put that, that in, part a, of that game. I really like that part because then we could, when we were building our skills off to the side, like, some people were doing cartography. Um, Emily's character, Nico, was working on the cook because she was the ship's cook and whatnot. It really went into that doing your role and to do it in a sci-fi setting in a very popular setting that we know, the Alien franchise. I'm really excited for that and to do a sci-fi game because I've never done a sci-fi RPG role-playing so back in the fall local uh comic book store had free rpg day and mm -hmm. uh, they had it set up where like four or five tables and each table there was a session from noon to two and then a session from two to four and it was all different games that you could try and i and i sat in on the um, Starfinder one, very small little scenario, but it was so cool having a little pew pew guy and um, 
you know, a, a personal device that I was, I think one of the backgrounds for my character was he was a, like a, a internet YouTube streamer type star, right? So in the middle of combat, because, you know, I was now more into role playing, I was actually playing up the fact that he was the streamer, right? So I'm holding up my my uh, little device and streaming to the world, me fighting this other guy. And it was, uh, was kind of cool. I would really love to, to look into that. So I agree with you. I think Emily would too. We got to work some sci-fi to our plan. Yes. So, uh, John, how about you? I think we have a pretty full plate of things that we have and have not played. But if I were to add anything to it, I know there is a Star Trek RPG that I've watched Elisha Pearl play before. That would be really cool. Um, I think I'm most looking forward to Starfinder because I feel like most of us are going to be able to jump right in and have fun with it because we still kind of know D&D pretty well. And also you sent us a picture at our local comic book shop, Heroes and Villains, of the cyberpunk rule book. That looks so badass. I didn't buy it, but I it, it was all I could do not to buy it. I'm very interested in it. It's not something like I've traditionally, as a person, been into. Like, cyberpunk has never been something that I'm like, eh, I, I think that's really awesome. But the aesthetic is really cool. And especially now that, like, well, I'm not going to mention that. It's kind of spoilers for the Star Wars show, but... They have some elements that are sort of cyber people, modded people in Star Wars that is kind of interesting to me. So so when you said cyberpunk, it made me think of a couple other things. And this is not necessarily games, but I'll be looking for games that included these elements like steampunk. That. I don't know the the pictures or the uh, the TV shows. Um, I just watch uh, what's that show that came out on Netflix? The two sisters, Arcane, um, seemed very steampunkish to me. Um, so I would love to do some steampunk stuff. Some Victorian England, Jack the Ripper era kind of stuff would be cool. Um, so Bakery Crew Ken tells us that Rifts has some great cyberpunk elements. Um, so, you know, Rifts is one we probably ought to consider. Um, I'm not real familiar with it. I'd heard the name before, but like uh, Sister in Darkness uh, said in the chat, you know, from from uh, Ken and others talking about Rifts on the Gamer Sledge for DM's One Idea show last Friday piqued my interest. So. So Rifts is probably something we can look at. What I'm, I'm going to tell you from the standpoint of branching out into other things, one of the things I'm looking for mostly is things that have good starter sets or dip your toe in the water stuff, kind of like, you know, this little pamphlet of seven pages of rule. The actual rule book is like 196 pages. But for seven pages worth of rules, you can dip your toe in and say, ah, is this a game that I like? And then and then spend the money on, on the big stuff. So, hey, Ken, if you know of any uh, 
quick and easy ways to dip the toe into riffs. Uh, I'd love to hear about, about that as well. Great. Uh, you know, Hannah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for, for signing on as our art director. I'm really looking forward to seeing that, uh, that first logo that you're, you're doing for, uh, Rick Stevens PI had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun with this, this whole, um, talk show format and the discussion really enjoyed it. Um, any final thoughts? We'll go around the table. Final thoughts, and you can you can wrap those up with you know um, what things you might be working on and where people can find you again on uh, on socials if you'd like to. So, Anna. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to join y'all and start all these new projects and to be more involved with percentile Price. I am beyond thrilled. Um, but overall, I think there are just so many different genres of RPGs out there that if you didn't like D&D, maybe you could like a different one just because D&D is so prevalent and like that's the one everyone first thinks of. doesn't mean it's the only one that there are tons of options that you can shop around for. And um, you can find me at Whole Noddle. I'm sure it's like written below or side. It's somewhere. But it um, I handle pretty much everywhere that you can find me. Cool. Thanks. Great having you. And I love the ears. Thanks. Don. You can find me at, at Bulby37 on Twitter if you want. But you probably shouldn't because I'm kind of garbage. Um if I'm going to have one thing to leave off on, be the best you can be. And sometimes that means asking your keeper, is there a stake in the bush? <laughs> and sometimes, damn it, there is a stake in the bush, even though there's no logical reason for it to be there. I'm Steve. Or Rick, you can find me on Twitter at Rick Stevens PI. You can always find me streaming here with Percentile Vice. For those of you who joined us late, I'll reiterate what I said, uh, kind of changing up our schedule a little bit. Uh, we're still doing actual play. We're doing that on Thursday nights now, at least for the next month. Um, some real-life schedules have been juggled around a little bit, and so we're having to make some adjustments. But we're going to keep this Monday from 6 to 8 slot. So all of you that are used to, to finding us here, you'll still find us here. And we'll be talking about different RPG and RPG-adjacent stuff so it may be ttrpg or it could be video game rpgs or what the news is in in those areas but we'll just get together and talk love to have you in chat and uh, engaging with us in chat uh like you did tonight uh ken thanks for showing up man i, I can't tell you brother how much it means to me to, uh, to look over and and see your name there in the chat box i appreciate it uh Gamer Sledge, uh, dude, you're like a, a mentor and a patron to me, so I appreciate uh, you showing up, and thanks for all the shout-outs you've given me on, on Twitter and, and Percentile Vice here on Twitch. Everybody else that showed up, we love you. Thank you for, for joining us. Again, you can find us Monday nights here from 6 to 8. 
um, talking about our favorite uh, pastimes. On Thursdays, we'll be doing actual play. And there may be some pop-up streams during the week where we're going to do some actual play of some video games. Once we get our feet into that, maybe we can figure out a way to lodge that permanently into our schedule. Uh, but those are the kind of things that we get, we've got going on. Appreciate everybody being here tonight. John, Hannah, thanks for discussing all that with me. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, y'all come check us out again. Thanks, everybody.